We'll turn to our master text today in the book of Psalms, chapter 78. And while you're turning there, I just want to say that three weeks ago, I did a teaching called, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And then I followed up that teaching two weeks ago with uh, something called Understanding Our Authority. And the two thoughts are connected because unless we really understand the authority that God has delegated to us, um, our prayer lives are always going to be somewhat hindered. And uh, so I want to continue that train of thought today and explore that concept a little deeper today. So let's read this master text in Psalm 78, starting in verse 36. And would you please stand with me and let's honor the reading and the proclamation of God's word. And just to give you a little bit of background and some context before I read, um, this is a, a passage referring to the ancient Israelites when they were roaming in the wilderness for 40 years. And it says of them, verse 36, but then they would flatter him with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, God, was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh a passing breeze that does not return, how often they rebelled against him in the desert and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again, they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. And if you're reading the New King James or the Old King James, it it should say, and they limited the Holy One of Israel. We'll explore that point in just a moment. So here again, verse 41 once again. Again and again, they put God to the test. They vexed or limited the Holy One of Israel. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat if you would. Praise God. Well, um, with those preliminary thoughts in mind that I just gave you prior to reading that text, I want to go on and focus on um, one particular passage that, uh, or I should say one particular verse in that passage that needs a little bit of more illumination, I think. And that's the tail end of that passage I read in um, verse 41. I'm going to read it to you from the original King James right now. Uh, Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. So in some of your newer translations, it uses the word vexed. Uh, the Holy One of Israel, something along those lines. So what is the meaning of that word then? In the uh, ancient Hebrew, that word is tavah. The word limited there in the King James is the word tavah. And here's why this is important. Uh, Number one, there's kind of a dual meaning to this verse. So that's why it's translated a couple different ways depending on what English version that you're reading. So it could mean to grieve, which is why some... English translations translated as vexed or frustrated, but it also means to limit, also means to limit. Now, is it possible to limit God or to grieve him? And some people would say no. And in answering that question, a topic that we're going to talk a lot about today is the sovereignty of God. Now, I heard a lot of you say, yes, it is possible to limit God. And I'm going to explain exactly how this verse is true today. How can you limit an unlimited God, for goodness sake? So we're going to explore that concept today. And in doing so, we're going to talk a lot about the sovereignty of God today. And I intend to enlarge upon what that really means versus the popular modern day misunderstanding of that term. So this may be new to some of you, maybe not so much to others. And this is going to correlate with our subject of authority and getting better results in prayer. See, because, for example, if you believe that God is controlling every little thing with every person all the time, then you can't possibly operate in the authority that God has delegated to you. And you're never going to have faith when you pray if you believe that everything's already preordained. Why would you pray? Why would you need to pray and exercise faith if everything's already preordained? Is that making sense? Now, I want to qualify something here, though, because in talking about this, I need to 
be balanced in this discussion. So there are certain things that are going to happen because God has preordained certain things. For example, someone was going to betray Jesus. Someone was going to come along and betray Jesus and turn him over to the authorities to have him crucified. That was preordained. That was going to happen. But you know what? It didn't have to be Judas. Because Judas had ample opportunity to repent of his greed and go in a different direction. And had he done that, somebody else would have ended up betraying Jesus. And then another example is that this earth realm in its present form is going to burn up someday, regardless of what you and I do. So the Bible predicts that. That's a fact. But what I'm hoping to get us to understand this morning is that the responsibility for you and I to be the hands and feet of Jesus, advancing his kingdom and impacting as many people as we can prior to that final day. Okay? So while there are certain things that are preordained, there are many, many other things that God expects us to do, and if we don't do them, they don't get done. Are you following me so far? All right, so then, is God's, let's, let's deal with this next question, this also in your notes, is God's power self-limiting? That's an interesting question. Well, I'm going to refer to Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, uh, which says, And because of their unbelief, this is talking about a region that Jesus went into, and um, he couldn't heal a whole lot of people there because of their unbelief. So it says, because of their unbelief, he, Jesus, couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Now, notice that it didn't say that Jesus wouldn't do any mighty miracles among them. It says that he couldn't do them. That turns some of your sacred cows right over, doesn't it? Why couldn't Jesus do them? Because Jesus was bound by the arrangement that God the Father had already made, already set in motion to respond to the faith, not just the prayers, but to the faith of his people. And because there was no faith in Jesus in that particular region, his ability to help those people was hindered. Does that make sense? All right, then so... A key concept for this morning is that God has voluntarily limited himself. Very important. God has voluntarily limited himself to work within the context of partnership with his people and faith. Very, very important concept. So write that down while I get a drink. All right. So then... In talking about sovereignty, we have to talk about this concept because there's a, there's a big misunderstanding about sovereignty in our church culture these days. You've probably heard the saying, well, God is in control. And people say that not really understanding what they're saying, as if to imply, well, all these terrible things that are happening, well, you know, God knows what he's doing, so he must have some plan behind all these horrific things that are happening, as if he's ordained them. Let's talk about what sovereignty really means then. So to reiterate from last week, you know, God's sovereignty doesn't mean that he controls every detail of everything that's happening on the earth. So let's take the example of a sovereign nation. You've heard that term before, right? A sovereign nation. And what all that means is that the government of that nation is autonomous and supreme in authority within the borders of that nation. Okay? But that sovereignty doesn't mean that the government of that nation is controlling every action, every decision, and every circumstance that happens among the citizens. Okay? So let's look at the dictionary definition of sovereignty for a moment. It simply means this, supreme in power and authority, self-governing. That's what the dictionary definition is. And this understanding of sovereignty is consistent, by the way, with the biblical understanding of how God operates. See, he is supreme in power, wisdom, and authority, but he's not controlling every detail, every decision, every action and circumstance of the world. 
Folks, listen, he didn't even do that in the Garden of Eden when everything was perfect. So he's certainly not doing that now. God honors free will. Therefore, taking back territory from Satan is not something that God is going to simply come in swooping in to do without the involvement of his vice regents, which is you and me. God could do that if he chose to because he's all powerful. But if he did, he would violate the arrangement that he made with mankind. We are still his co-laborers. Okay, we're still as co-laborers and he will work only within the context of the prayers, decrees and labor of his people. So with that in mind, let's go back and read Psalm uh, 7841 yet again with those thoughts in mind. And again, I'm reading from the King James Version here. Uh, Yea, they turned back and tempted God. How do they tempt God? By tempting him to be angry enough with them. To wipe them all out. Remember, it took Moses coming in and saying, Lord, don't wipe them out. Remember, he was determined to do that. And by the way, that thought right there kind of ties into the whole sovereignty thing. Because how many of you know, God can make a determined decision to do something. And his people can step in and beseech him and, and pray to him. And sometimes he changes his mind. It happened with Moses. Moses got God to change his mind because God said to Moses, Moses, step aside, get out of my way. Remember, he said, leave me alone, Moses, so that I can destroy these people and I'll start over with you. And Moses intervened and said, God, don't destroy them. And God said, okay, because you asked me to, I won't destroy them. God can be persuaded. That's the whole point. All right, so think about this. Think about this one point right here. So listen. If God is the one arranging all the details behind the scenes of every person's life, every circumstance, every detail, if he's the one that's arranging all that and preordaining that behind the scenes, how then can he be displeased by the bad choices that people make? How can he be vexed by some of the choices that people make if he's the one that ordained them? You follow me? So in this case, in the case of the Israelites, God wanted to make, uh, God wanted to have those Israelites make a, a short trip from Egypt to the promised land, which had they gone in that straight line, would have been about an 11-day journey. That's what he wanted. Okay, that was his preferential will. That was his preferential will. But their stubborn refusal to go in and take the land away from the wicked Canaanites thwarted that desire and plan. And it limited God's ability to complete his plan in the time frame that he wanted because he was working within the context of the faith and the cooperation of his people, the Israelites. Thus, he was, quote, limited in his ability to help them, which vexed him. Okay, are you following this? All right, so in contrast to this truth, some people will say, well, brother, I just believe that God is all-powerful and he'll do whatever pleases him regardless of what mankind does. No, that's not how God's kingdom works. He did not set it up that way. He, he, listen, God is indeed all-powerful. I don't mean to, to minimize from that truth. God is indeed all-powerful. But remember, even though the Bible tells us that God does not wish for anyone to perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of repentance. That's his preferential will. But in spite of that, that's not what happens all the time. Not everyone repents. Folks, listen, masses of people rebel against God all the time and go to their eternal destruction. And that's not his preferential will. He desires for those people to turn and repent. Right? Amen. Praise God. God is loving. He doesn't cause people to be born just to send them to hell. On per, I mean, he doesn't ordain people. People make their own choices to do that. Okay? Listen, God is indeed all-knowing and all-powerful. That's true. But in his sovereignty, he's limited himself to the choices, prayers, petitions, faith, and actions of the people on earth. 
See, if everything was predetermined without the involvement of God's people, then what benefit would there be in prayer and evangelism? None. See, God works through the delegated authority of his people, like we talked about at length last week. Now, listen, yes, he does direct the courses of our lives to an extent. We are not autonomous beings, so don't get me wrong. But God will not override mankind's free will and force us to do things that we would never have otherwise done. He doesn't work that way. We have to cooperate with God. And when we do, he, he intervenes in marvelous ways. Now, the apostle Peter also spoke to this. Let's look at his words. Um, in 1 Peter 5, verses 14 through 15, it says this. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything, key phrase right here, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Now, on that note, I, I want to offer a key thought here. See, the very fact that Jesus taught his disciples, I think this is in your notes, right? With some fill in the blanks there. Yeah. So the, the very fact that Jesus taught his disciples to pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven assumes God's perfect will is not accomplished without the earnest prayers of his people. Otherwise, why would he ask us to pray that? Okay? Now, let's go back to 1 Peter 5 for a moment. What's the point of this verse? Well, first of all, there has to be knowledge of God's will through his written word. Knowledge of God, God's will through his written word. And, and there needs to be corresponding action then beyond that point which in this case is the asking or the praying. See, the implication here, folks, is that without the asking, there will be no divine response. Without the asking, there will be no divine response. Thus, God acts only when his people pray and pray according to his will. See, again, he partners with you and me. The book of James follows suit. Now, this one will hit some of us between the eyes. This is one of the most profoundly difficult verses to try to get yourself to, to be comfortable with because it does call us to a higher level in prayer than most of us are used to operating in. Let's read it together. James 1, verses 6 through 8. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, wait, wait, wait. You're saying, Pastor Andy, that God won't answer my prayers if I don't pray in faith? No, I didn't say that at all. The Bible did. If you ever hear me going off some sort of rabbit trail into a gospel of Andy, you are welcome to walk out on me. I didn't say that. God said that. Okay? The, listen, James 1, 6 through 8, and the previous passage that we just read, 1 Peter 5, verses 14 and 15, we take those two together. Those tell us that we must pray in order to see God act. But prayer must be combined with faith and knowledge of his will. So without those three ingredients, prayer, knowledge of God's will, and faith, then the scripture tells us that we shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. Again, I didn't say that. God did. Now listen, God is not, quote, sovereign in the sense that he's just going to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. I mean, he, listen, he could do that. He has the ability to do that if he wanted to. But if he did, he would violate the arrangement that he made with mankind. That's not how the word says that he operates. Okay? We have to partner with him. And when we do, that's when we see results. Okay? We can't just do whatever we want and expect that we're still in God's perfect will. See, the Father ordained the writing of His Word so that we could know His will and live in it and obey it 
But on the other hand, if a person doesn't know God's will and doesn't live in it, then the perfect will of the Father is not accomplished, at least not in that person's life. Okay? So God wants to partner with his people in order to advance his kingdom throughout the earth. See, people who believe that God is just going to do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, without the involvement um, or responsibility on our part, see, they've taken the default position of being blown here and there by whatever circumstance happens to come along, and they've been deceived into believing that they have to be happy about whatever calamity or wickedness raises its ugly head because, after all, God must have ordained it. Is this tracking with anybody at all? Let me illustrate that point for a second, okay? So consider the millions of innocent babies who have died at the hands of abortion doctors. You know, that surely grieves the heart of God, who said in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So God, listen folks, God did not ordain abortion. That's a work of Satan, the work of Satan. Now, now fortunately, the, uh, the tide has begun to turn against the abortion industry, by the way. Um, you know, Planned Parenthood, as an example, has been under heavy fire as of late, and the number of performed abortions has gone down sharply since 1990. It's been on a downward trend since 1990. Yeah. Hallelujah. See, society is becoming more aware of the horror of abortion and the sanctity of preborn life. And why is that? Well, partly because of the sustained prayers and mammoth efforts of God's people who have felt the pain of the Father's heart and undertaken His work in that regard. In fact, get this, Planned Parenthood's own statistics show that uh, the the no-show rate for scheduled abortion patients goes up to 75% when... There are people praying near the clinics when the women arrive for their procedures. Praise God. Isn't that amazing? See, God works through the prayers and the efforts of his people. So he's not a lone ranger. Okay? He wants to partner with you and me. All right. Now, getting back to the sovereignty issue here. um, Some people have called the sovereignty of God the way it's being taught today is the worst heresy in the history of the church. See, the way some circles are teaching about the sovereignty of God grants people a certain amount of comfort, I guess, uh, about troubling situations in life that are difficult to explain or, or understand. However, there are many false teachings, folks, that provide the same sense of comfort and false security. See, Satan has to sprinkle in just a certain amount of truth in every lie in order to avoid detection. And false doctrine, by the way, must also possess the the promise of peace and security in order to gain wide appeal. Isn't that right? So this is the nature of false doctrine, by the way. If it were easy to detect, no one would believe it. I want to say that again. If it were easy to detect... No one would believe it. And if it were not attractive, no one would embrace it. If it were not attractive, no one would embrace it. It has to be attractive. Okay? It has to have some truth sprinkled in with a lie to avoid detection and gain wide appeal. That's the nature of false doctrine. Well, the fact is, the way the sovereignty of God, the way it's being taught in many religious circles, has, again, been referred to as one of the worst heresies in church history for two reasons. Number one, it misrepresents the nature of God, since it implies that God is the author of disease, crimes against humanity, and all manner of suffering. See, the, the, the idea that God controls every little minute detail of every person in every circumstance, that is the end result. If you take it out to its logical end, that's the end result of that belief. That God ordains rape, child molestation, other crimes against humanity. If you really believe that, then that's the, that's the, the end result. 
the logical end to believing that way. You have to come to the point where you say, God must ordain child molestation and human trafficking, torture, murder. Right? God doesn't do those things, ladies and gentlemen. Now, by the way, isn't that shrewd of Satan to get people to believe that? I mean, he inflicts untold suffering on mankind and then figures out a way to blame it on God and get masses of people to believe that. <laughs> Satan truly is a liar and an accuser. He not only whispers accusations in the ears of God's people to keep us trapped in cycles of shame personally, but he also makes accusations against God to you and me. See, he's been doing that since the time of Adam and Eve in the garden, attempting to deceive people about the true nature of God. Well, the second reason why the sovereignty of God, the way it's being taught in some religious circles, has been called one of the worst heresies ever, is because it tends to excuse people from any personal responsibility, or so they think. <laughs> or so they think. I heard Pastor Keith Moore call it no-fault religion. In other words, whatever happens is not my fault because God must have ordained it, right? So this has been a very effective satanic strategy in hindering the advancement of God's people. I might get a little sticky with this next illustration, but just, okay, just bear with me. Have you ever considered that the people who believe this way don't even practice their own convictions? Let's take sickness as an example. See, many Christians believe that God puts sickness on his people in order to teach them character or patience, even though there is zero scriptural evidence to support that idea. Okay? Now listen, certainly God in his rich mercy can teach people things in the midst of their sickness, and he can demonstrate different facets of his love and his character to people who are suffering, but, you know, this is in response to the sickness or the suffering, not because of it. I like to say that God is an opportunist. He'll use whatever is at his disposal to minister to people. Okay? And if people happen to get sick, he can certainly use that while they're going through that to speak to them. But he didn't put it on them in order to teach them a lesson. See, the idea of God maiming and striking his beloved with sickness and disease to teach them character, again, can't be supported in the Bible. Whenever, someone, uh, whenever God smote someone with sickness in the Bible, as an example, when he did so with uh, Moses' sister Miriam, when he struck her with leprosy, now listen to this, it was always an act of judgment. It was never a, quote, blessing in disguise. Study it. Study it out. Don't take my word for it. Go study this out. Okay? Whenever God smote someone with sickness or disease, it was always an act of judgment. It was never a, quote, blessing in disguise. So the same ones, the same people who claim that God makes people sick to teach them humility or to bless them in some unseen way, a lot of those same people will will then immediately go to the doctor and receive care in the hopes of getting better whenever they fall ill. All right, so let's think logically about this for a moment. If they believe that it's God's will for them to be sick, yet they respond by doing everything that they can to get well, hmm, then they either don't really believe it's God's will for them to be sick, or... They are knowingly attempting to circumvent God's will or what they perceive to be God's will by trying to get better, even though they believe that God wants them to be sick, all the while claiming to be suffering for Jesus. Is this making sense? Do you see the double standard there? Okay. So if people truly believe, now listen to this, if people truly believe that it's God's will for them to be sick and he was, is the one that made them sick, then the noble and godly thing for them to do would be to simply accept the suffering and be happy about it and stop trying to get well. 
See, the deformed understanding of the sovereignty of God, however, has been a very effective satanic strategy to get people to accept sickness as hand-delivered by God instead of it being just what it is, a result of living in a sin-soaked world. As a result, people attribute to God what is a work of Satan because they have not learned what the scriptures say about divine healing and the true nature of God. Hallelujah. I'm liking God better all the time. <laughs> so that no-fault religion, as Pastor Keith Moore calls it, is a, a, the way that a lot of Christians live their lives due to the distorted understanding of the sovereignty of God. Whatever happens, it's not my fault because God must have ordained it. But I want you to understand that God holds us personally accountable for our own personal development as an example. He won't do those things for us. So then we do have personal responsibility to seek God with all of our hearts, according to 1 Chronicles 16.11. And all the things on this list here I just have given you one scripture passage for, but there are many scripture passages that validate each one of these. So we do have personal responsibility to seek God with all of our hearts, not passively, to walk in his ways, according to Deuteronomy 30, 16, to be busy about his business, according to Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, to know his word, 1 Timothy 2, 15, to pray continually, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, to keep fellowship with God's people in public worship, Hebrews 10, 25, to grow mature in the things of God, 1 Peter 1, 5 through 9, and to invest financially in the kingdom and local church, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15. Again, there's lots more passages that support all of those. But God holds us personally responsible to develop in all of those areas. God will not do these things for us. He commands us to do them, and he blesses us in response when we do. But if we don't do them, however, then our progress is stunted, our effectiveness for the kingdom is limited, and we continue to be dominated by sin and self-destructive mindsets, and we run the risk of falling away from the faith altogether. Yeah. See, many Christians, especially American Christians these days, it seems, live very passive spiritual lives. Their idea of being a disciple of Jesus is, is reading their Bible once in a while, uh, praying now and then, uh, going to church when they feel like it. The weather's not too bad or there's not something more fun going on that day. Not committing the big sins like adultery. And as long as they do that, their consciences are appeased. Yet that is not what true biblical Christianity looks like, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, Being a disciple of Jesus means... Taking up your cross. Taking up your cross to follow Christ. So uh, let's read that passage. This is uh, the words of Jesus here. These are very sober words. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Kind of a paradox there, isn't it? So listen, taking up one's cross, by the way, is the picture of the execution of a self-focused life. I'm going to say that again. Taking up one's cross is the picture of the execution of a self-focused life. It means you might not get to do things your way all the time. In fact, there's many times you won't get to do things your way. There's many things that you'll have to say no to in life, and other things you may not want to do, but you say yes to when you walk with Christ. See, being a disciple of Jesus means being consumed with pursuing the things of God as a matter of lifestyle. Not just on Sunday mornings. As a matter of lifestyle, praise God. It's a, see, it's a proactive kind of spiritual life, not a passive one. 
It also means taking personal responsibility, by the way, for one's actions and spiritual growth and not chalking up everything that happens as the will of God, regardless of what you did or did not do. Now, let me give you kind of a a silly example, but I think it'll drive the point home. Let's say you drive your car for 15,000 miles on on the, the same oil change, and then your engine locks up and ruins your engine. And you say to yourself, well, God is sovereign. I know that he knows best. This must have been his will for me to be stranded out here on the highway with my engine locked up. No, no, listen, it wasn't God's sovereign will that that happened. It happened because you were stupid. (laughs) Change your oil. That wouldn't have happened. Okay, right? Hallelujah. It seems like I saw that on a yard sign or something one time. And it's, now I'm starting to remember it. Um, oh, I remember what it said. It, it wasn't really talking. It wasn't a religious sign. It, it said, uh, not everything happens for a reason. Sometimes things happen because you were stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Hallelujah. Right, right. <laughs> so... The whole concept of the sovereignty of God and the way it's being taught in some religious circles is a very convenient way for some people to live any way they want to and exonerate themselves of any conviction to pursue God passionately. They believe that they're in God's will regardless of what they do and their, their eternity is safe and secure regardless of what they do. See, it gives people false hope and a false standard of Christian living. This is one major reason why it's being called the worst heresy in the history of the church. Now, for many people, the false version of the sovereignty of God is a great way to anesthetize the conscience and uh, lead to no fear of God and no ability to detect one's sin, let alone hate it. Do I need to say that again? The sovereignty of God, the way it's being taught in some circles, not all, is a great way to anesthetize the conscience so that there's no fear of God and no ability to hate one's sin or even detect it in some cases. See, by claiming that God controls everything and even one's own spiritual apathy must be his will. We have effectively handed right back over to Satan any power or authority we may have otherwise had. Again, by claiming that God controls everything and even our own spiritual apathy must somehow be his will. (laughs) Any power or authority we may have otherwise had, we just hand it right back over to Satan. So friends, God is not making you or me do anything outside of our own wills. He's therefore not dictating our decisions either. As such, he's also not dictating our eternal destinies. We have to make a conscious choice to follow his plan, to do things his way, and persevere in our faith. And when we do that, then we can begin operating in our God-given authority and begin advancing God's kingdom in the earth. See, it's all about mindset, isn't it? Yeah, if you believe that you're just some worm of a Christian and you're destined to eat dust and grovel all the days of your life and that's what God thinks of you, you'll never be able to operate in faith. You'll never be able to operate in the authority that God has given you. But when you see yourself as a child, a saint, an ambassador of his kingdom, then there's confidence and faith that rises up in you and and you get the idea that, look, I can't do a thing apart from myself, but in Christ I can do all things. Hallelujah. Yeah. When we do that, then we can begin operating in our God-given authority and advancing his kingdom in the earth. And, And if we don't do that, by the way, then God is limited. God's kingdom is not advanced in the earth. We don't get that mindset. If we don't, we just continue to have this idea that whatever will be, will be. To quote that old song, who sang that? Doris Day, that's it. Gay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. So I'll just sit back here and eat bonbons and watch the Home Shopping Network all day. 
because whatever will be, will be. God's in control. If that's your mindset, folks, then, then God is limited, he's, and he's vexed by that, because we don't end up operating in our full authority, and his kingdom advancement is hindered. Okay, I'm almost done here. I want to give you a closing example of what I'm talking about here before we wrap all this up. Okay? You okay so far? Uh, Okay. All right. So I read about an African pastor once who lived in a very impoverished region. And uh, as he began learning about some of the things that we're talking about today, he just got a conviction. He just got a revelation that he could uh, uh, be fruitful and multiply and expand even in that region where even the vegetation was scarce. And everything around was brown and barren. Well, in a few short years, he and his congregation were able to buy a sizable plot of land, build a sizable church building on that land, and remarkably, everything on their property was green and flourishing, even while everything around it continued to be brown and barren. Hallelujah. It just takes a shift in your thinking. Shift from, from worldly thinking, from, I'll say it this way, shift from religiosity, religious thinking, that's, that's concepts born in the, the mind of man and, and sold as religious, rather than really getting your theology and your proper doctrine from this. And that's what I'm trying to get you to understand today. There are doctrines of men that have nothing to do with this right here. And they're being preached in churches, by the way. So that story, that pastor that I just told you about, reminds me of the story of Isaac in Genesis 26, where Isaac settled in the land of Gerar during a time of great famine, great drought. And it goes on to say that Isaac sowed his seed in that barren, dry, cracked ground. And what was the result of that? He reaped a hundredfold and became so prosperous that the inhabitants of that land both envied him and feared him. That makes sense. Some person comes into your region, all the ground is cracked and dry and barren. Nobody's planting or harvesting, but this weirdo comes along who claims to worship Jehovah and he says, God has told me to plant in this dry, cracked ground, they're like, okay, and he does, and then he reaps a hundredfold, and they see how prosperous he becomes anyway, and yeah, uh, they fear a person like that. It's like, what planet are you from? But see, that happened because Isaac obeyed God and acted in faith when God told him to sow in that barren, drought-stricken land. And because he acted on faith, ladies and gentlemen, and not what he saw, and not what he felt, and not his puny little intellect. You see, a a puny little intellect would say, appropriately so, accurately so, I can't plant in this land. There's no way anything is going to grow in that dry, cracked ground. And intellectually, that would be accurate. But God is so much bigger than your puny little intellect. God's so much bigger than the laws that govern nature. Hallelujah. So God's kingdom advanced in that region because Isaac obeyed God and then prospered in the process. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what God has in mind for you and me. He wants us to follow his lead in every way. And in doing so, his kingdom will advance in the earth and we will reap some personal benefits in the process, both in this life and also the life to come. Hallelujah. So I want to end with this right here. I'm going to give you five takeaways that I want you to get. Now, this is not in your notes. So if you want to take a picture of this screen or something as I bring up these takeaways, um, you're welcome to do that. But the first takeaway is this. God wants to co-rule with you. Raise your hand and just say, God wants to co-rule with me. God wants to co-rule with me. Hallelujah. Say it again. God wants to co-rule with me. And uh, just because uh, repetition is the mother of learning, one more time. God wants to co-rule with me. Hallelujah. That's exactly right. Yes. The second takeaway is that God limits himself to partnership with his people and is vexed 
by unbelief, which, by the way, if you read in the book of Numbers where uh, that account, you'll find that account of uh, God being you know, angry with uh, the Israelites for not obeying him to go into the promised land and take over because of what they saw there. They feared the giants and the, the huge armies and what have you. So they, they, saw, they, they saw circumstantially what was going on and they feared and they didn't, they didn't believe God. So you know what God called that? He called it rebellion. He called unbelief rebellion. It vexed him. Okay, so that's your second takeaway. Number three, God also works within the context of the faith of his people. Fourth takeaway, uh, therefore we must pray in faith, act, and do according to that same faith and understand the important role each of us plays in God's kingdom advancement. Now, if you'll allow me, I'd like to take a one or two minute little um, side journey on this point right here because I want to make some qualifying remarks about this point right here. I want you to know that, that serving is also a way that we do and act to advance in God's kingdom, serving. So, you know, don't be discouraged if you don't have a great parachurch ministry, by the way. Um, like we have several parachurch ministries represented here in this congregation, which I'm so happy about. Um, you know, don't be discouraged if you don't have a great parachurch ministry like uh, We the People, like uh, Lynn and Mary Beth Klaus have headed up, or the Christian Motorcycle Association, which Bill and Paula Compton are a part of, um, Iron Aprons Women's Ministry that Steve and Pam Hall head up, and they founded that, or uh, the, the Liberty Academy of Columbus, which J.R. And, and Sarah Huff are raising up. And I, you know, listen... Hallelujah. Now, I, I know I brag on these parachurch ministries a lot just because I'm so pleased that God is, is using people like that outside of the church. But maybe I don't, I don't brag enough on the people serving inside the church without fanfare to make the church function like it does. You know, people like humble Juanita and Gina that never draws attention to themselves but they're just so faithful in doing what they do, okay? God honors that. People like the Whartons, the same thing. Uh, Brent Denny, who is now leading uh, our men's group. Uh, all the ladies who work in the kitchen team preparing the food, I'm so thankful for you. The sound guys who make the worship team sound good when the worship team's playing, okay? People like Doug Bringle and, and Tammy Pennington who help with graphic design and the audiovisual issues and the, the, the prayer team, the greeters, you know, all these people, the, the people that, that work in the children's ministry, all, all these people make God's church function and cause his kingdom to advance. And if, if we didn't have those people filling those roles, God's kingdom would not advance, at least not through this church. Yeah. Amen. So I wanted to throw that in here because, uh, you know, God hasn't called each one of you to lead some grandiose thing, and that's okay. Because, listen, in most cases, most of the body of Christ, now you may not realize this, or maybe you did, but I just want to reconfirm this if you've already thought about this. In most cases, um, we've been called, most people in the body of Christ have been called to serve in, in ways that very few people other than God are going to applaud. Okay? But when you're faithful in those little things, quote unquote, God's kingdom advances. It takes all of us, folks. It takes all of us. There's leaders that are out front, and there's the people behind the scenes that support the leaders, and without the people behind the scenes, the leaders would never be able to pull off what they do. You know, I heard it said, maybe it was John Maxwell that said this. I don't know who, who said this, but a leader who no one is following is just simply someone taking a walk. <laughs> you got to have people behind the scenes supporting what the leaders do, or it doesn't, it doesn't happen. All right? All right, one last point in your takeaways. God expects a return on the investment he has made in us. How many of you know God has made an investment in each one of you? Some of you might say, well, I don't have a whole lot to offer. No, don't say that. 
God has made an investment in each one of you, and that investment that he's making in many of you, your, your cases is still unfolding and blossoming even as we speak. God has made an investment in each one of you. I, I don't know, I guess I'm trying to be led by the Spirit here, but Allison, for some reason the Lord wants me to speak to you right now. God has made an investment in you, Allison. He's made an investment in you. He's raised you up for a purpose. You're a young lady, but he's raised you up for a purpose. God has something very specific in mind. And it may not be grandiose, but it may be. But whatever it is, it's very, very important to the kingdom of God. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever sell yourself short, Allison. Okay? Because God has called you to something very important, very specific. Praise God. Yeah. I don't know why that came to me. I mean, Alice and I haven't talked about anything. I don't know what's really going on in your life, Alice, and that's just an unction from the Holy Spirit. So hopefully that speaks to you. But God's made an investment in all of you. I don't care who you are. That's just the person that God spoke to me about just then. But he's made an investment in all of you. So God expects return on that investment that he's made. God's like any good investor... He doesn't invest in something unless he knows he's going to get a return. He expects a return. Okay? He expects a return on the investment he's made in you. And he will hold us accountable for our own personal development and how we use the authority that he has delegated to us. Hallelujah. So, I want to close today by saying that none of what I've said today has anything to do with earning your salvation. I want to make that very, very clear. None of what I've said today has anything to do with you earning your salvation or earning brownie points with God. That's not what this is about. See, your salvation is by grace alone through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, period. Amen. Hallelujah. Now listen, though, in response to such a great love and such an amazing salvation, we then roll up our sleeves and say... Here I am, Lord. Use me. Use me. Use me, Lord. Here I am. And when we can get a handle on the fact that we are representatives in the earth, God's representatives in the earth, doing His work with His delegated authority, just like an ambassador of a nation does, by the way. Okay? When we can get a handle on that, when we can understand that and we can get a revelation about that, then God can use us to do greater and greater and greater things. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Did God speak to you this morning with that? Stand and pray with me, please. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.